You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Monday, beautiful country. Here we go, getting into summer, June 20th, coast to coast to coast. I hope you had a good weekend. We got a great show. We've got breaking news right now. Canada's going to spend $40 billion over 20 years and $4.9 billion over six years to modernize the NORAD defense system. You're like, wait a second, the NORAD defense system? What is that? Well, the defense minister, Anita Nand, is talking about that. This is our continental defense system that we are upgrading. This is something that we've had for uh, post-Second World War since uh, with the United States. And it is old and it is creaky. And we're going to upgrade it with billions and billions of dollars. Why? Because there's a genuine threat. Hypersonic missiles can blow past any radar defense we've got. Um, Cruise missiles now can blow by these things. So this is important. We need a new surveillance system. Why? Because, look, Russia, China, and others are serious threats in the Arctic regions in the north, and we've got to know what's coming. This system will be called Crossbow. That's what the new system's called. You'll get to know this Crossbow. And then there's going to be a space-based surveillance project for satellites. So this is a big deal. Some might say we, we don't have another $40 billion over 20 years. We don't have another $4.9 billion over six years. We are keep... Well, we're going to get new F-35 jets. This is the price of insurance. When you think it's too expensive, it's not. You want things there just in case. This is the price. You want to You want to be a real country that defends its democracy, this is the price. We're long overdue on this. Our military is pathetic in terms of not the men and women, but the equipment that we give them. They're flying old planes. They're sailing old ships. We need to arm our men and women with modern-day equipment and protect our country from modern-day threats, and that is what is required. And it's expensive. The men and women are serving our country, are putting their lives at risk for us. Let's give them the best. And let's make sure that we're not throwing out systems that were designed in the 80s to handle challenges from 2022. The Chinese aren't waiting. The Russians aren't waiting. It is an ugly, dangerous world. And we better get in the game. And we're already behind. We're already late. This is already too late. The big question I have for the glo- for the uh, global affairs and for the national defense departments is, will you join ballistic missile defense? And there's no word on that today. We're going to do this. I actually thought she would say, yeah, we are going to to have the ballistic missile defense. BMD is a NATO mission. And I thought Canada would be part of it. And we've opted out. 
Why? We've studied this. It's a real threat, so I'm, I'm really surprised about that. But we'll find out. Now, Canada is part of an international NATO BMD program. But what will happen in ballistic missile defense here in Canada? And this is part of it. So we'll find out. If we join the U.S. ballistic missile defense, and apparently we're taking a comprehensive look at it, according to Anita Anand last month, after 20 years of saying no to it, that'll be interesting. But we'll see. But this is a huge step. So that's happening right now. Um, Patrick Brown's been accused of cheating by Pierre Polyever. He's going to join us. Uh, We are going to check in, speaking of our men and women in uniform, on trying to get Jess LaRochelle, the Victoria Cross. He's an Afghan vet. We never forget our men and women in uniform. This is a story that's very compelling. We're going to talk about the three-day work week. The bank is moving, TD Bank is moving to a three-day work week. We'll talk a bit about that. So there's lots of stuff on the show today, and Rick Westhead is going to join us on this remarkable story, there's actually testimony on uh, Hockey Canada in a sexual uh, assault case. But I do want to say something before we start. For It was quite a weekend, and, and, and I'll be candid, I'm still stirring it up a bit. I had my 21st wedding anniversary, Friday. Then my son graduated high school on Saturday. So he had his prom and his grad. And then it was Father's Day, my first Father's Day without my dad on Sunday. And and like every one of these events was significant. And I was thinking to myself, what, you know, there's kind of two kinds of people. There's the skirter and the marinator, someone who skirts around things and just like these are events and I don't really want to probe my quote-unquote feelings. I don't want to dig into it. I don't want to like, you know, my son's graduating. He's a great guy. He's really happy. He's going to a great university. Thank God he's happy. He's healthy. Just take it, like it, have a great time, which we did. Friends, family, parties, fantastic. Anniversary, great. Fantastic. Uh, Father's Day, feel very lucky. Had a great day. You know, played some tennis, went for a bike ride with my wife, went with a good friend and saw Maverick, the Top Gun movie last night, like a full dad day, had the things I love, very lucky. So I just go there, everything's great. I paint that picture for people that are like, how's it? Life's good, life's great, everything's great. You know, you give that version that you post on Facebook, you tell people everything's great. And I'm kind of that in general. I just like to skirt around the big mucky pond of feelings. And and then at some point, and it was Saturday night, and it was after prom, and uh, a bunch of parents went out for drinks. Because the parents joined the kids for for dinner, and then the kids all went off to their own private party. And then a bunch of the parents decided we'll go to a bar and hang out. And we've gotten to know each other We've over the many years, and it's great. And so we all started to have a drink. And one of the dads, Brad, who's a great guy, uh, and I had gotten to know each other over the years, and, um, and really just recently a bit more. 
a really fine guy. And we were having this conversation. I said, he said, how are you feeling about things? And I know you lost your dad. And I said, you know, I'm just trying to um, just stay in the moment, not skirt around it. Like, just think about this moment. Think about my son, Gid, and his friends, and 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 the, these all the time, all the journey to get there, the ups and downs, and the sacrifices that parents make, and those late nights, and how the days are long and the years are short. How the days are long and the years are short, and it's just passing, and. And then my dad's not here for the first Father's Day to, to see my son graduate. He would have loved it. And I said, I'm just trying to not skirt around it so much. I'm just trying to sit in it and just try to capture. And maybe that means writing something down or maybe it just means acknowledging it. And, and, I, and, it, and I, I must say, I tossed and turned in my sleep. Maybe it was a couple more drinks than usual. But I'm just trying to figure it out. And I will say this. It's hard to stay in the moment and marinate in this stuff and be mind. I think someone said to me, be mindful of everything. It's almost like exercising. The muscle of mindfulness overworks. And anyway, I'm trying to hang in the moment. Many of you sent me messages. I appreciate it. So to the dads out there, happy post Father's Day. To those who are graduating, have a great grad this week. And we will take a break. Pat Brown's on the other side. Let's uh, marinate for a minute. If they said it, we'll call them on it. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, there's an allegation of cheating in the conservative leadership race. In a letter sent to the um, party, the Pierre Polyev camp is alleging that organizers working for the Patrick Brown campaign are arranging to reimburse the membership fees paid by individuals who agreed to join the party using Patrick Brown's web portal. They say this is contrary to membership bylaws. Of course, membership fees have to be paid by the applicants, can't be reimbursed. The Polyev camp says they have proof. They've got a recorded conversation, they say, which alleges these arrangements were discussed. They believe Brown is doing this to drive up membership sales, and it's a widespread practice, they believe. Now, the Brown camp dismissed this as a smear campaign from the Pierre Polyev camp. And of course, September 10th is when the vote happens. Remember, Pierre Polyever claims to have 311,000 new members. These are extraordinary numbers. Brown says 150,000 he signed up. There's only probably 160,000 in the whole party. Andrew Shear, when he won, signed up like 9,000 members. So these are unbelievable. So I asked Pierre Polyev to come on. I hope he comes on. He has yet to come on. He's not doing a lot of interviews right now. He's doing a lot of rallies. But I, I did talk to uh, Patrick Brown on CTV's question period, and I asked him the the Polyev camp says, one, they've got audio recordings and messages to support their accusation against you. So let's put it on the table right now. I want it clear. Has anyone in your campaign, anyone, offered to reimburse someone for the pur- for the purchase of their membership? Absolutely not. And listen, this is a pure Polyev trying to change the channel. This week, there was a big story in world news, and it was that crypto currency was crashing and Pierre Polyev's signature economic policy 
was recommending Bitcoin to Canadians. And if you took his advice, it would have lost half its value. Your investment would have lost half its value. You saw what happened with the El Salvador government when they depended on uh, cryptocurrency and it was devastating for their finances. Pierre Polyev does not want to answer questions about how he has brought out economic policy that is embarrassing for the Conservative Party. So instead of answering questions and being willing to go on your show, which he's hiding from, he's decided to attack other Conservatives on claims that have no substance. So so is the, the audio recording, I assume your camp has heard it, is it authentic? Does it show that someone uh, allegedly offered to reimburse? Yeah, it, first of all, we never heard of the individuals on the uh, audio recording, no connection to our campaign, and it's just, uh, you know, it, it is a distraction. And so Pierre Polyev wants us to be talking about this. He is an expert when it comes to um, communications and uh, and these type of distraction tactics. Let me just two more on this membership thing, because, you know, they cite your own book that you wrote uh, and they quote your book, Takedown, where they say that you wrote, quote, of buying, buying up memberships for their supporters. Everyone knows it. Every party does it. No one really clamps down on it. It's sort of like jaywalking. You have been, in the past been accused of inflating membership numbers when you left, led the Ontario PC party and you said it was 200,000. Your successor said it was actually 130,000. They're saying that this is your past and that's why you can't be trusted now. I just want you to answer that. So these stories come out in every leadership campaign and, and Evan, you know that it comes out every leadership campaign about allegations of membership purchases. We've seen that over the last uh, 20 years. And I'm very glad that the Conservative Party put into place practices that uh, prevent that. They don't allow prepaid credit cards, that we have a very strict rule and, and a strict uh, uh, process. And uh, um, certainly my campaign uh, abided by uh, all the rules. Okay. Uh, they've also, just in case you thought that was the only uh, attack, the Commissioner of Canada Elections has been asked by the backer of Mr. Polly ever to investigate a report that you're using city staff in Brampton, where you're the mayor, to work full-time in your leadership bid. Is that true? So, of course not. We have a, a, a strict uh, policy in the city of Brampton that if you want to be involved in any political campaign, whether that is provincial, federal, for any political party, you can do so in your evenings, on your weekends. If you want to do so during the day, you have to take unpaid leave from work. And that is a policy that is enforced in, in, in the city of Brampton. I would note that this is once again the Pierre Pauli of campaign working with his friends at Rebel Media to uh, push an attack. And I have to say to the Pauli of campaign, um, this doesn't leave the impression of a confident frontrunner. You know, if they are so focused on uh, attacking myself, it begs the question: Why? You know, they, they, if they if their membership numbers were accurate, you know, they they wouldn't have to resort to these techniques. It, it's actually bewildering. Okay, but but. <laughs> The concern is that you're losing support and momentum. Two weeks ago, two MPs who previously supported you switched to the Polyev camp. Michelle Rempel-Garner stepped down as your campaign co-chair to explore a possible leadership bid to replace Jason Kenney in Alberta. Um, does that show that, in fact, the Brown camp might be... You're losing momentum, not Polyev. If we were losing momentum, he wouldn't be spending this much time to uh, attacking our campaign. He spends more time attacking my campaign than he does Justin does Trudeau. Hurt, but and, does it hurt you that the MPs are, are, are leaving you for him? So, first of all, in terms of the case of uh, Michelle Rempel, um, you know, she is being courted to run for the Alberta Conservative leadership. She still supports my campaign. She's, she's a friend. And I think it speaks to the caliber of supporters I have. I would say the tactics that uh, the Polyev camp is taking with MPs that aren't supporting them is a scorched earth approach. Uh, certainly 
Um, we've seen that in terms of the treatment of Ed Fast, who got removed as finance critic. Uh, um, and then to the day, I don't think if for you know so, somehow Pierre Polyev was successful in this race, when you take those scorched earth uh, approaches to a leadership campaign, how are you ever going to bring the party together? Have you ruled out a run in city politics? You have until August 19th to declare yourself a candidate in the Brampton mayoral race. Can you tell us right now, are you going to register for that? Uh, or have you made a final decision on that? Well, first of all, I've said I'm committed to running uh, federally and leaving municipal politics if uh, Jean Charest was successful, if Leslin Lewis was successful, if Roman Baber was successful, if Scott Aitchinson was successful. Um, I just believe Pierre would be an electoral disaster. And if he was successful, I, I'd have to um, think about returning to um, public but, service. But, but or, that's or, or not until September. Death. I'm just I'm just trying to figure it out. But you don't know till September 10th about the the leadership race uh, for the Conservative Party. You got Are you going to register? Before August nineteenth, no, will you declare yourself yeah. a candidate? Well, I have no plans to to register. I still feel very confident that uh, I can win this race and uh, and put the Conservative Party in a position to um, defeat the Liberals, the NDP, in the next election. Okay, so I just want to just well, last thing on that: you are here and committed to stay in the leadership race until the convention on September tenth. I'm I'm here to committed to stay in the leadership race and defeat Pierre Polyev and build a winning Conservative coalition. What do you say to the many members of the party now, sitting MPs who have endorsed Mr. Polyever, the, the lion's share of the party, um, that they're, they're backing him? How, do you, how would you, if you were leader, uh, work with those members of parliament who clearly are giving him the early lead, not you? Well, you know, we saw that happen um, in previous leaderships where actually I think in the last several leaderships, the candidate with the most caucus endorsements didn't win the leadership. But my approach would be this. Um, no matter which candidate you support, um, it, it doesn't matter. I, I'm going to work with everyone uh, and uh, I certainly it wouldn't hold any grudges. I think there's a lot of talent in caucus members who are supporting other candidates. And uh, um, I would want to make sure the party can use their talent and uh, focus on defeating the liberals. Okay, but so if you won, you could work with Pierre Polyever. Would you put him in your cabinet? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's important to have a variety of voices. I would certainly um, encourage Pierre Polyev to continue to be involved in the party. I think he could be a formidable minister. He's certainly been a good attack dog. Um, and uh, I think you can have a variety of views in a, in a cabinet. That's Patrick Brown. He's certainly been a good attack dog, he says, of Pierre Polyev. They can't work together. I mean, how does Pierre Polyev serve in a cabinet of Pat Brown, after he's called him a liar, can't. How does Pat Brown serve with Pierre Polyev? He just says he can after he called him an electoral disaster. They can't work together. There's no coming together. If Pierre wins, he'll purge Brown. If Pat wins, he'll purge Pierre. But they can't win like that. I know Pat says, oh, I'll work with Pierre. How? Pierre Polyev has called him a liar about 10 times. Bad party. This is a nasty race. So we we got to pay attention to it. September 10th is coming. Tick, tick, tick. And all the candidates are working overtime to make sure those members that they've signed up actually stay engaged and actually vote. Let's take a break. When we come back, the case to give the first Canadian Victoria Cross to a very ill veteran. We've talked about it before. You don't want to miss his story. It is incredible. It's next.
Authentic voices, real conversations. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We have told you the story of Jess LaRochelle. Jess LaRochelle was a remarkable veteran who close to 15 years ago or more, actually more than 15 years ago now, was part of Charles Company of the Royal Canadian Regiment. He was then Private Jess Randall Rochelle, was under attack by the Taliban. Two members of his crew killed, three others badly wounded. And what he did on October 14th, 2006, to fight the Taliban is one of the most remarkable stories in Canadian military history. It's an act of valor. He saved lives, and he's still alive. Now, he was awarded the Star of Military Valor, which is the second highest citation, but there's a group of veterans, known as Valor in the Presence of the Enemy, who want to see him upgraded to the Canadian Victoria Cross. No one's ever won it. And we've spoken to the former chief of the defense staff, Rick, General Rick Hillier, about this. But I want to bring on Bruce Moncour, the founding member of the Valor in the Presence of the Enemy Foundation, who has been fighting to get Jess recognized. Bruce joins us now. Bruce, how are you, sir? Very good, sir. How are you? Good. First, thanks for your service. Tell us there's a, there's a develop Before, I want you to tell a bit of what, what Jess did, because every time I hear it, it sends chills down my, my, my spine. But there's... Uh, there's a problem here. I, I thought this was going to be a no-brainer, but Aaron O'Toole, the erstwhile leader of the Conservative Party, tried to make this happen. What, what happened on Friday? So Mr. O'Toole uh, last week put out a information packet, about 16 pages, worked with all parties. The bloc asked him to make some amendments, and he made them. Um, through uh, my wife, who put forward the petition, petition E3636, uh, MP Nikki Ashton, and uh, they put forward this motion, unanimous consent motion, hoping that we could form a uh, independent body review, essentially a group of uh, independently would inter- review soldiers that we felt might have not been as recognized as they, they could have been, and then starting with Jess Lower Shell, and uh, the Liberals voted it down. Why? Um, I, I, that is a good question. I mean, as you mentioned, Jess is still alive, but he's in the hospital right now. He's, his health is deteriorating rapidly. Um, his family is, wants him to get this, you know, while he's alive, not posthumously. And to be arguing for him, I've been, I've, I've been asking for about 10 months now, uh, trying to get, you know, behind closed doors with liberals. We've been talking to his member of parliament, Mr. Rhoda, the Speaker of the House. We've been talking to the, the, the chief of the defense uh, committee there, uh, Mr. McKay, and they've both been said they would support this. Um, and Mr. Rhoda's had meetings with Anita Anand. Uh, we've talked to Lawrence McCauley's office very closely. and Yeah, um, who's the vet- had- Veterans Affairs uh, Minister. Right, right, but also the Associate Minister of Defense. So we've we've reached out to a, a lot of liberal people who've all told us that they would they, they are supportive of this only now to have this vote go against us and to play dirty politics with you know. A, well, I don't a understand why they, they would do it, Bruce. Like it's weird because I've spoken to liberals, but they all seem to support Jess Lever, uh, Lerichel. Why not? Why wouldn't they? 
I, and maybe it's a power grab. Maybe it's they don't want to be, you know, seen as going along with it. Maybe they're, you know, I guess there's been some issues with the Conservatives supporting unanimous, unanimous consent information. But, I mean, if you also look at a deeper thing with the Liberals, is Brian Massey's bill, private member bill, about making Ojibwe Park in Windsor-Essex County a national park, they voted against it, and NDP and the Liberal have this, you know, you know, this deal, this, this is to, to form government. But the Liberals aren't voting for the NDP's private members' bills. Yeah, that's not part of the supply and confidence motion. I get that. It doesn't mean they vote together on everything. Um, right. But I, but, but I want to focus on Jess Leverschel because I want Canadians. Look, in the end, we hope politicians respond to Canadians. And I'm speaking to Bruce Moncour, who's a founding member. Can Bruce just remind our listeners across this country? About that day, October 14, 2006, what Jess did. So Jess, on that day, they show up uh, to this strong point center, and they, they find out that there is going to be an imminent attack within 30 minutes uh, of them getting there. And they need somebody in the observation post, and Jess volunteers to go, knowing an attack is coming. So the attack, of, within 15 minutes, the attack happens. A rocket-propelled grenade hits Jess's position. It knocks him unconscious, breaks vertebrae in his neck and his back, blows out his right eardrum, and detaches his retina and has a severe con- concussion. He comes to, sees his position almost being overrun, decides to fight back with a C6 machine gun, realizes it's not doing its job, and takes 15 single-shot rocket launchers and basically just the dispatches of these 20, Talib, 20 to 40 Taliban fighters and does this. And if you got to think about a rocket launcher, is first of all, the rocket, when it hit, if it didn't bend any of those tubes, if he had shot that and the tube was bent, it would have detonated in his hands. So putting that aside, he rips off these rubber stoppers, extends the tubes, and aims at the Taliban, single shot. Now, to aim a rocket, you have to expose yourself because you don't want anything behind you or to hit or have the rocket hit anything in front of you and detonate before it reaches its target. So he's basically exposing himself to the Taliban, firing these rockets, everything like that. And then he mans the position for another 14 hours afterwards, comes back to base, carries Blake Williamson's casket in the ramp ceremony with a broken back and a broken neck, and then seeks medical attention. I don't know what more he would need to do. And there's four criteria for Victoria Cross. Uh, incredible act of bravery, getting injured or killed in the action, changing the course of the battle. And, I mean, I don't know what else Jess would have had to have done. And we're not asking to give him the VC. We're asking for a review and an independent body review because there have been reviews. The last one in 2012, we had a, they did a review, and nobody, none, of the, none of the medals got changed. And one of the people that sat on that uh, review was Admiral Mark Norman, and he put out a statement through our organization saying that there was biases and uh, and flaws in the last review. So it was obviously some issues within D&D that would reflect trying to get these reviews done properly. I would say this, folks. Um, when you hear Bruce talk about Jess LaRochelle that day, and it's a remarkable day, Canada has never in the entire decade of the Afghan war, never awarded a man or woman its highest battlefield citation. Now, you might think, wait, I've heard the Victoria Cross. Yes, there have been 98 Canadians who have received the British Commonwealth version of the Victoria Cross during the Second World War and other battles. But this is the Canadian uh, Victoria Cross. It's never been given out. 
you've got the former CDS's generals and a whole group saying this is a guy that deserves it. He saved lives. He was wounded. He risked his lives. He exhibited the highest form of bravery. And he was a young man, Bruce. I mean, he was he went way above the call of duty. Well, 100%. And he's not the only one, Evan. We've identified 26 soldiers throughout history. One uh, World War II veteran that got the second highest medal, his name is Mo Hurwitz, and he got the second highest medal. And in uh, Professor David O'Keefe told me that in the in the, the write-up that they didn't give him the Victoria Cross because Jews are known to lie, end quote. Um, there is another soldier, uh, George McLean, in the First World War, an indigenous soldier, fought in Vimy Ridge, uh, rescued his, his uh, officer, carried him back to safety, went back and joined the battle, killed 19 Germans, captured another 14, wow. and was given the second highest medal. This guy was 41 years old and fought in the Boer War. And like we've found some guys, Francis Pegamoagbo, the, the sniper from You're World War One. great sniper, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen. 378 confirmed kills, 300 wounded. He took out a battalion. And these guys, they all deserve... This award, this is the sign of a mature country. I know we're investing in NORAD today. We need equipment, but you know what we need to invest in? Our men and women who serve. Let's get Jess LaRochelle the, the Victoria Cross. Bruce Moncourt, you know you've always got a place here, founding member of Valor in the Presence of the Enemy Foundation. Bruce, thank you, sir. Thanks for your service. Thanks for having me. Anytime, Bruce. You know that. Anytime. Uh, we'll take a break. Coming up, the three-day work week, your texts and calls. Paying close attention to your money, your world. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, a lot of you are thinking about your vacation, but I want to know what you think about what you will be like in the future of work. Today, TD Investment Bank says, you know what we're doing for our investment bankers who are already probably quite rich? We're going to have the hybrid model, three days in the office, two days at home. Now, some are doing five days, everyone get back. But TD's basically saying, this is it. Look, we are going to go to the permanent hybrid structure. And I want to know what you think, not about investment bankers, about the three-day work week. Now, not the three-day work, but three-day at the office, three-day at home. one 833 or 710-10. 1-855-633-1010 or 710-10. I do not think, I do not think that every office will go back full-time. This is going to be the normal, the three-day in-office work model. Now, some people say, well, they better not make it Monday and Friday. So you go to the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Because if you go in Monday, if you if you take off Monday and Friday, it's like long weekend. So you better make it in office Monday, home on Tuesday, in office on Wednesday, home on Thursday, in office on Friday. And then some say, no, you do whatever you want. 
1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Uh, Jack is already, this is, this is amazing. Do you like the three-day in-office work model? Jack, what's up? Uh, no, I disagree about it because uh, after that, what will be a two-day, then after what, the one day, and then who knows? I think the reason why they're doing this, corporations, banks, and whatever, is they're trying to eliminate the, uh, the rent, uh, you know, commercial rent. Uh, let people work at home. Uh, but what they're trying to really do is basically move everything, the structure, uh, business, onto the Internet. Because let's face it, everybody has computers, laptops, and uh, cell phones. That's the goal. Is uh, And this way, it's going to make more profits for the, comp- the companies. Uh, and uh, pay, pay, uh, what's, the thing is I'm worrying about is unemployment is going to be high in 10, 20 years from now. It's not high now, though. Like, we have a tire. I appreciate the call. Uh, you may be right. I think corporations are always trying to alleviate responsibility. You know, do I need employment insurance if you're working at home? Do you need the same medical coverage? Who pays for your office? What about, what if you hurt your back sitting down? Do you have the same productivity? But it is happening, whether you like it or not. People like it. People want it. I'm telling you, if you commute an hour to work every day or two hours, you're loving it. Way better work-life balance. Elon Musk says in his company, if you're not back five days a week, 40 hours, you might as well, I'll consider you fired. You're over. It's done. Robert, what's up? Yeah, hi, uh, Evan. I love your show. Listen, I think it's a great idea. It's less stress on the person. Something like you said, some people have to commute an hour, hour and a half, two hours each way, every day. And that's a killer. And that's not like uh, people on the subway downtown where they have to spend 15 minutes. Number two, less pollution, less traffic on the system. I'm shocked Mayor Tory doesn't say, listen, everybody, we can't go downtown all the time. We can't come to the office all the time. Less stress on the road. What, what about the businesses? So, so let me ask you, I totally agree with you on all that. I think you're making like completely sound points. Let me just put you the other side because I'm intrigued to hear what you think. I'm the mayor and I say, well, good idea, but downtown businesses are getting gutted. Office space is getting gutted. I need to revitalize the downtown. I can't take 20% or, uh, of the people out all the time. I want people back. I'm worried about security of information for certain offices. No, we got to get people back to work. We need the engagement and we need to keep our downtowns alive. What do you say to that? Well, I would say, okay, Mr. Tory, I see your point. I want you to move to, let's say, I don't know, north of Barrie. You have to commute every day yourself. Let's see how that works out. Also, I want to see, you know, I understand that, okay, there's no, with with the price of gasoline going right through the roof, no one's got money to spend on the cafes and the uh, variety stores and the the lunches uh, that they had three years ago. So I think that model is out the window. Really? Well, then, then look at today. So then let me say, if now let me play the, the job of the mayor, and I say to my staff, hey, get Robert out of here. He's too smart for me. I would like someone less convincing to talk to me. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Good call. I appreciate it. That's Robert. That's good. There's no way Robert's getting a meeting with the mayor. And I was like, that guy, Robert, man. No, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, he's, he's smart. He's engaged. He knows what he's talking about. Price of gas was a killer argument. Um, what do you guys think of the uh, three-day in-office? In Is Robert right?
I think it's. Ha- I think that's going to be the model people land on. By the way, I think it's posing some challenges, but that's happening. One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. TD Bank is doing it. Elon Musk is not doing it. I think. Look, I. I think it's tricky. Evan, it sounds like bad news for the commercial real estate industry. S- uh, staggering in office work generally means less space needed. Wait until the recession hits. A lot of this great resignation uh, challenge will disappear when jobs are scarecrows. That may true. Evan, I'm in support of the three-day office. We have to, we've been doing that in my office and it works great. Look, the when the price of gas is this high, when commutes are long, people want to spend time with their families. If you're commuting an hour to work and you can do that a few times less, twice a week less, have a little job flexibility, your productivity is not going down. Are we kidding? Of course it's going to happen. Now, some people are going to say, I don't want to work. Or maybe, but there will be, here's what will happen. There will be softwares that will monitor you, of course, and your productivity. And if you're not productive and, and, and meeting your performance deadlines, there should be an easy way to, to say this is not working. Because there will be people who are going to free ride on this. Now, I don't know if you would, you would give your employees the Friday and the Monday off. Some people say, I don't care. And some people say that's a recipe for exploitation. And you'll get some people who are diligently doing it and some who are free riders. Patrick, what's up? Oh, good morning. Good morning. Good what's, what's on your mind, sir? Well, as I said before, I sort of agree and disagree with this three-day work week because two things. Number one. People are going to have extra time on their hands. They're going to work part-time jobs, have a second job, only because the cost of living is so high. And this is what's going to happen. They're going to be burnt out by the time they come back on Monday. My second point is, as these people, so they work three days, but what happens if the workplace gets busier? Are the, are the, are the employers going to ask these employees to work extra for more overtime? And therefore, you'll have more overtime. So what's the point? And how do you mind? And I, listen... I think there's two things with when you're not there. One, how do you monitor? And two, how do you mentor? A lot of stuff happens. And, and how do you build teams? I think that's going to be a big thing. But I tell you, the, the high traffic, the expensive parking, the lower productivity, those are real issues. Great Calls is a three-day work week here to stay. Coming up, is food getting more expensive? Wait to hear the farmer's perspective. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. You think food is expensive for you? It is. It is. Paying more for meat, fruit, vegetables. It's real. And consumers are feeling it. But hey, let's walk down the food chain. What about the farmers? You think they're getting rich off this? You think the price hikes is all making farmers uh, paying off all their mortgage? No, the farmers are feeling it worse than you. Avia Eek is the wife of a third generation farmer from Eek Farms in Ontario's Holland Marsh. What a great place. She's a municipal councillor for Ward 6 in King Township, and she's feeling it too. Avia joins me now. Hi, how you doing? 
I'm great. Um, if I may call you Evan. You um, could call me whatever you want. I love it when you call me Evan. And I know Holland Marsh well. I, I, that's a beautiful area. I never understood why they built the, uh, the highway right through some of the primest farmland in Ontario, but they did. Yeah, well, government decisions, you know, you know about that. It happens all the time. <laughs> How are the farmers doing? Um, well, you know what? Every year is a challenge. Um, every, we, we all, like I was saying to the gentleman I was just speaking with, um, my husband keeps a journal and he writes down, you know, when he's got the seed, how much the seed cost, um, when we were doing, when we were applying crop protection, when we had um, crews of people in weeding. It's, it, we're commercial growers. It's not all about spraying things. A lot, 50% of our weed control is done by hand. Um, and, you know, um, every year presents its own unique challenges. Mother Nature is, is a friend and a very serious foe. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. There's, a, there's a number of things. And then this year, um, as with 2014, you know, you throw in some world events and you think it's a, it's an arm, it's, it's a world away. It doesn't impact us, and it absolutely impacts us. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things going on, but our farmers are, are they're a persevering type. It takes a special oh, breed to grow food for the population. It certainly, certainly does. But, but let's talk about, uh, as food prices soar, are, is it good for the farmer? What are your margins like? Okay, so honestly, our margins haven't changed. Um, the prices, and, and, and this, is, this is really funny because I, I don't, my husband does the shopping. I don't. Um, I, I buy a, a produce box from a local farmer and he sources locally as much as he can, but he goes down to the food terminal when our stuff isn't in season and I get good quality stuff for a really great price. So I haven't personally seen um, the cost of food going up. Um, but back to your question, the farmers, the farmers are not the ones that are gaining on this. And that, that's a really short answer, but there are so many variables that contribute to what is going on with food prices. I mean, we've got fuel costs, we've got production yields um, in any given year. Like the price of food is really in the spotlight this year because of the rate of inflation, because, you know, um, we're, we're just coming out of a pandemic or, or things are, e the restrictions are easing. But whatever the reason, um, people are really feeling that they're paying more for stuff, and, and I think it's, it's the fuel costs. Um, there's world events going on that impact. There's interest rates, Mother Nature. There's so many different things that impact why the prices are going up. And, no, to answer your question, the farmers are not the ones that are, are gaining big time. Um, if we have – okay, so – and I'm going to qualify that. In, in a year where you have a, an okay yield in your crop, and every year is not the same. Like I said, Mother Nature is a formidable, um, she's, she's formidable. She can be our friend or our serious foe. If we have low yields, the price is going to be up. It's simple economics. If you've got a supply and a good demand, then you're going to have decent prices. If you have low supply and a high demand, you're going to have higher prices. So there, there's that to be considered. So it depends on the, what the crops are now. The prices we're seeing for food right now, um, there's not a lot of Ontario produce available. There's the greenhouse gas, the, the greenhouse gas. There's the greenhouse vegetables that are available, but oh, overall, we got the greenhouse gas too. We got that yeah. too. You got the vegetable. You got it all. Yeah, yeah, really, we do. Um, but seriously, no, um, we haven't even really gotten into the 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 season this year, the growing season. What I will say, um, and and you know. As a farmer, and I was raised by a single mom 
who was on mother's allowance, and money was scarce when I was growing up. My mom was lucky enough to have a home, and we put a garden in every year. So um, what I would suggest if people are feeling the pinch, if they have a property, um, put a garden in. It's not. It, it's hard to grow food at the commercial level because everybody's so picky. The chain stores are picky about about the size of it. The the price is an issue. Um, but if if you want to grow your own vegetables, you know, yeah. put a garden plot in. Little well, if you can. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't have access. Well, there are such things as public gardens, by the yes. way, yeah. which are community, really great. Community. Um, Oh, community gardens. Yeah, community gardens are great. And the other thing that the other thing that I wanted you to outline because you know this is you get your your food from a food box, and these are available in a lot of cities. Like uh, people are listening to us across the country in BC and Quebec, all over Ontario. But in every location, there's kind of situations like you've got where you can sign up for local produce and you can store it. Can you just explain what that is? So because a lot of folks are like, what is she talking about? Okay, so there's two different kinds. The, the produce box that I get is, is through, it's called Farmgate Fruit and Vegetables, and they're here in the marsh, and they deliver locally. You can come pick it up. Um, they, they advertise on Instagram and Facebook, and they send an email, or you can go to their website, farmgate. Oh, shoot. CA, I think it is. And, and then you can pick the box, the box A, which is $35, or box B, and then there's add-ons. Then there's another... another well, hold on. What's in the stream. box, though? For 35 bucks, what are you getting? Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, this week I... Oh, what is it this week? Um, we've only got a few minutes, so I have to be really quick about this. Yeah, but it's not like pizza. You're getting, like, fresh products, vegetables and fruit, right? Yep, and, and, and it varies every week. Okay, so for this week... Um, for the, hold on, just give me a second. For the $35 box this week, you're getting a container of blackberries, cantaloupe, uh, grapefruit, plums, and a container of strawberries. Vegetables, you're getting corn, probably four cobs. You're getting cucumber, fresh, um, locally grown lettuce, peppers, and tomatoes. And how do you make sure that doesn't go bad? Like, like the last thing you want to do is buy it, and then it goes bad. How do you, do do you keep it somewhere? Do you store it? I eat it. I love it. Yeah, and, and and you know what? And you plan. Like, my son moved out a couple weeks ago, so we don't buy the $55 box every week yeah, now. Yeah. Um, depends on, on what's in it, and then I trade things out. There's your um, savings. Your kid moves out, man. Your food bills drop. My, everything I'm, drops. I, Are you kidding me? Everything drops when your kid moves out. Um, so, But there, that's one stream. And then there's community-supported agriculture, which is where you pay into a farm. Um, I think we have a local one around here in Mount Albert, and it's called um, Cooper's Supported Agriculture. It's Cooper CSA. And, and you, you contribute so much, and then you get, you know, they grow whatever they grow, and then you get a share of that. So there's two different streams. Um, you know what? For your listeners, because I would imagine your listeners are predominantly Toronto GTA. No, no, no. We're across the country. We're see. You're talking to B. You're talking to Victoria. You're talking to Camel. You're talking to. You're talking to Windsor. You're talking to Ottawa. You're talking to Montreal. Oh well, hello everyone. Um, <laughs> well, okay. So here in the Toronto area in Ontario. Um, you've got this wonderful thing called York Farm Fresh. They have a mobile yeah. app. It's in seven languages, and it'll connect you directly 
to the growers of that produce. So it's fresh cut that day. It's a more reasonable price if you're concerned about the price in the grocery store. And um, there's, there's options. But the, I would just say this, as I speak to Avia Eek, a wife of a third-generation farmer. I didn't want to say third wife of a generational <laughs> farmer. I meant wife of a third-generation <laughs> I don't want you to say that either. No, no. I, like I, at first, I was like, "Hey, third wife of a generational farmer." No, no, wife of a third generation farmer and the municipal council for uh, Ward Six and King, King Township, folks. The, the the big message is like food prices are high. It's not it's not benefiting the farmer, but more than anything, shop local. Like just do what uh, Avia is talking about. Look in your local community there. You could support a farmer, but you get these boxes and you can save a heck of a lot of money on on good, fresh local food. I, I got a bolt, Avia. Thank you, Avia Eek. You're the best. Thanks. You take care. Bye bye. Uh, that's uh, life in the marsh. Great farm people and uh, doing great. Thank you for for helping us put food on our table. Um, hey, I'm gonna put the uh, travel minister's feet to the fire on travel next. Wait for it. If they said it, we'll call them on it. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show well, travel, on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, travel mandates ended today, but are travel delays over? That's the big question. And can you even get a passport if you wanted to finally travel? Toronto Pearson Airport is still experiencing flight delays. People spending days, days getting their passport. This is a, an embarrassment. Federal government has been under tense pressure to, to drop travel mandates. They finally did. Right. They also dropped the requirement for all federally regulated transportation sector employees uh, to have that mandatory vax. And and if you work at a federally regulated sector or you're a public servant, you don't have to be vaxxed. I know there's some kind of freedom protest convoy coming on Canada Day back to Ottawa, but the mandates are dropping. I'm not sure what they're protesting, but, you know, hey, the right to protest. Go for it. But was the decision to end mandates based on medical science? They could have done this weeks ago. Or was it political science? That's what people want to know. And will this alleviate the delays, the delays, the delays, the incompetence, the lack of workers? Why wasn't this predicted? To find out, I spoke to the Transport Minister, Omar Al-Gabra, and I said, can you tell us today exactly? Let's be clear, because you're supposed to be about evidence-based policies. What is the evidence for the scientific threshold? Like, what was the number that you finally lifted these mandates today and not, say, a month ago? Exactly as you stated, we have been consulting science uh, and experts on our measures and uh, we've committed to Canadians that we will always err on the side of public safety and do everything we can to protect their health and safety. And it is true that the virus has evolved and the science associated with it has changed and now that vaccine, two-dose vaccine is less uh, sufficient to reduce transmission and based on that information we felt that it's we felt comfortable that we can now suspend these mandates for travelers but we also wanted to remind canadians that we need to remain prudent and if things change in the fall we may have to again adjust our measures i hope they don't get worse but if they do we want to make sure that we're ready to protect Canadians. what's the threshold again you know your government has long said you follow evidence-based policy making 
What was the evidence? Just give us the numbers where you all gathered around and say, okay, this is the date we can finally lift the mandates. Because you and I both know that um, for months we've known that uh, vac the two-dose vaccine um, is not seen as effective. Um, right now. So what was the evidence? Can you just be transparent? Like, was it hospitalization rates? What was it? Well, I'll tell you, Evan, it's a combination of things. First, it's research and studies, and we wouldn't have acted based on the first research that had come out. We needed to see ample evidence. We needed to see several studies, and we looked at multiple studies in, uh, about the effectiveness of vaccine to those shots. Second, indeed, we looked at hospitalization and ICU rates. We looked at infection rates. We looked at risk factors and the fact that we're in the summer where a lot of the gatherings happened outdoors. So there's been a variety of factors that we considered. We are being measured, we are being responsible, and we are doing our due diligence because we want to protect the health and safety of Canadians. Okay, but so, so the gov you've said, and you just told us, that the mandates could come back if the situation evolves. We don't know... We can't really get a figure out on when your government decides at some point to lift mandates. What's the threshold to put them back on? Is there a number that we should know? Or is that also a kind of, again, I, I, some mystery that you put together, some algorithm that we don't know? So, so uh, Evan, I understand why you and many Canadians want to know a solid number. But I'll explain to you why that is somewhat difficult to do. For example, if, God forbid, we have a variant that has a high infection rate but low hospitalization rate, uh, then even if the hospitalization rate is high, we may not have to impose severe measures. But if we have a variant that has low transmission rate but high severity rate, even if the hospitalization rate is low at the beginning, we need to be prepared for a high severity. And so there are some variables, and I understand that it's uncertain, but we have to be responsible. And I can't make a commitment on a specific number if I know there's uncertainty, but my commitment and our government's commitment is that we will do whatever it takes to protect the health and safety of Canadians. Okay, meantime, you're getting crushed about the delays. Millions of people are experiencing delays. Uh, Pearson International Airport is, is experiencing a lot of delays. I know there's delays all over the world, but Canadians are, are, are trying to figure out what you can do here. Is it fair to say, Minister, that the government miscalculated the amount of travel there would be, that after two years, there were, you underestimated it, there weren't enough cats out, you weren't prepared for the influx, and, and we're paying for it now. Is it fair to say there, that you miscalculated the demand and, and, and that underestimation is what we're paying for now? I, look, Evan, I think it's re reasonably, reasonable to say that the surge was unprecedented, that the surge that we're seeing today, uh, and I'll tell you, economists a few months ago were predicting that air travel won't be back to 2019 levels until 2025. What we're seeing today based on these patterns is that they might come back to where they were by the end of this year or early next year. So it, there's for sure an unprecedented surge in travel that we're seeing around the world. Having said that, we're acting, Evan, we need to be very quick and agile in responding to the surge and I think it's good news for our tourism industry it's good news for travelers but we need to make sure that we're providing the resources needed uh, okay but 
I, I mean, nobody traveling who's gone through Pearson says good news. Like, it's been a nightmare. People are waiting hours. Their flights are getting canceled. Um, are, is your government, we have a passenger bill of rights. Is your government enforcing the passenger bill of rights so uh, passengers are getting compensated when their flights are canceled or there's overbooked or, or is that happening? Absolutely. We brought the passenger bill of right to ensure that uh, airlines are held accountable to a high level of standard. The Canadian Transportation Agency is the body responsible for adjudicating complaints, for holding the airlines accountable. Having said all of that, we are working together. I want to thank everyone who works in the industry today. Every, I know everybody is working hard to respond to the surge, uh, but of course, we have expectation that our airlines um, resp are responsive to travelers, are held accountable, and we're making sure that we provide all the support needed. And Evan, let me just assure you, Last week, the numbers were 50% better than the week before, and that week before were better than the week before right. that. Having said that, there's still a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of work. Like, we need to remain focused, and we need to ensure that we're doing everything we can. Is there a date that you can assure Canadians watching that at airports like Pearson, uh, you, it will get back to normal? It will get back to no delays like we've experienced. At what point does it return to the best practice? So, Evan, as a person who lives in Mississauga, where Pearson Airport is, I can tell you that almost every summer there are always occasions where Pearson is busier than normal. Having said all of that, we're working diligently to ensure to address all of the issues right now that are causing these bottlenecks, whether they are resources, whether they are public health uh, uh, processes, whether they are CBSA, and we want to see this addressed as quickly as possible. We're working with the airport to make sure that they have the resources needed. We're working with airlines, so I can tell you I am focused and committed to doing everything the government can to, to, uh, to address this. This is a problem for the government. That, that, that's Omar Gabra. I appreciate that he comes on. Maybe things are getting better because it can't get worse. You can't make people wait that long for a passport. It's beyond unacceptable. It's a joke. Now, the airports, it's another thing. They should have predicted this. They should have had people in place. It's a tight labor market, I know. Maybe things bounce back quicker than they thought, but they still have to be accountable. But the passport office is a joke. Remember, I hate to say this, but public servants who the government, they had probably the least suffering of any other worker in the pandemic from a pay point of view. The government should have had this ready for people. People need their freedoms back. And, you know... I hate to say it, but travel delayed is travel denied, and people have the right to travel. Um, okay, there, there's a remarkable federal government inquiry into Hockey Canada right now, and we're going to break it down for you. You don't want to miss it. This is crazy. Where accountability is key. This is Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
Hockey Canada is in the spotlight right now. Today, in about two hours, there will be hearings on a federal committee on Canadian heritage to get Canadian Hockey Canada officials to appear to find out what happened in a horrific case involving allegations of sexual abuse and a settlement, and to find out whether the government was actually involved in sexual assault allegations and a settlement, whether public funds were used. This is, you got to know about this. Um, Rick Westhead, TSN senior correspondent, is just landed in Ottawa. We don't give him any time. We don't even get it. And he's going to go to the hearings and he's going to report on the hearings. But before he even gets a coffee, he's on our program. How you doing, Rick? Hey, Evan, I'm pretty good. So tell people who don't know, wait a second, they're like, wait, Canadian Heritage is, is having meetings on hockey. Can what, what is the story? What happened in June of 2018? Well, we don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that in April, this past April, uh, a lawsuit was filed by a woman who was identified in court documents only by initials, and she alleged that following a Hockey Canada gala event and golf tournament in London, Ontario in the summer of 2020, that she was sexually assaulted by eight Canadian Hockey League players, including some who were members of the Canadian World Juniors team the prior Christmas. And weeks after that lawsuit was filed, it was settled. And I got a tip that the case had been filed, a statement of claim had been filed in London, Ontario, and, and chased it down and, and reported on it. And after reaching out to the attorneys for the plaintiff, was told that the case already had been settled in the span of about three weeks. Hockey Canada said, we take the allegations against members of the 2017-2018 National Junior Team, uh, as well as the safety and well-being of anyone participating extremely seriously, um, we respect the wishes of the young woman who brought this incident and to like to maintain her privacy. So what is the concern for the government here about the settlement? I'm interested to see how this goes today because the government has said that they'd like to know whether public funds were used to pay the settlement to this to this woman. And I'm not sure why that's a relevant question. If Hockey Canada is a publicly funded national sport organization, and obviously it is, receiving tens of millions of dollars through the years uh, in taxpayer money. Does it make a difference if the taxpayer money was used to pay a settlement as opposed to if it was broadcasting and sponsorship money or if it was opposed to the money that Hockey Canada receives from families across the country who pay for registration costs for their children? The point is, Hockey Canada is a federally funded national sport organization and regardless of whether public money was used to pay the settlement i think that from an accountability standpoint that there's a lot of questions that need to be answered about one this case in particular and how it came to be that it was settled in three weeks but just as important how many more cases are there like this how many more cases has hockey canada settled and i think that'll be interesting to hear at the you know standing committee later today whether members of Parliament go down that road as well. Speaking of Rick Westhead, an investigative journalist, of course, for TSN, who's done extraordinary work on many things. Here's the thing that we didn't even know about. The accusation is that this woman was sexually assaulted by eight, uh, by eight different CHL players 
and some members of the Canadian Junior Championship team, allegedly, in this London hotel room uh, in, in 2018. I guess the question to me is, how do we not know that? So then they just, what, quietly settle this and it all goes away? That That actually, to me, is the more... A pertinent question. They just say, all right, you know what? Uh, here's some money and everyone goes away and they give them like, that is remarkable to me. I think what's remarkable about it, Evan, like truly remarkable is just how inconsistent Canadian sport organizations are in 2022 when it comes to transparency on this issue. And maybe it's because the, the news cycle moves fast and, and sport and the grand scheme of things for the government isn't a priority the way other files are but you know there are there are national sport organizations like athletics canada and when athletics canada has uh, an abuse investigation its practice its protocols are to post the report finding of that investigation where coaches are sanctioned for bad behavior on their website you have national sport organizations uh like skating canada and gymnastics canada that disclose the names of coaches who have been sanctioned and how many abuse complaints have been filed with the federations. Hockey Canada is not like that. Hockey Canada will not and has not posted either the number of complaints it's received or, you know, the results of investigations into bad behavior. And that's frankly surprising. That's what I've heard from from MPs, if only because Hockey Canada is so rich, you know, certainly... Um, in the best financial position of any Canadian national sport organization. Yeah, and I see you know, Rick Westhead. And apparently, uh, we, we, when you look at, I know uh, uh, Jonathan Gatehouse from uh, CBC News has done some good reporting on this, that when you look at the finances of this, uh, Rick Westhead, that apparently they don't pay any income tax and, you know, they've received a chunk of change from the government, Um over the years, millions and millions of dollars uh, have gone to uh, Hockey Canada. Uh, and, and so I don't know, is it, uh, I guess Hockey Canada received $5.65 million in Sports Canada operating grants in fiscal 2021. Like, it's it's a pretty kind of a, they've got money, right? Well, I filed a Freedom of Information request months ago and wrote about it and posted about it a, a week or so ago. And over one eight-year span... I uh, believe it's just before the pandemic was the when the eight years when they it finished. Um, they received thirty three million dollars, thirty three million over that eight year span. So yes, absolutely, this is an organization that's receiving its its fair share of public money. But the, but the transparency on how they spend it, how would how would you rate that? Well, I'm not an expert on on this, you know, but but I would say compared to other national sport organizations, they're not disclosing as much as others are. Like I said, you can you, you can look at other national federations, Evan, even some provincial federations. If you look at the Ontario Volleyball Association, for instance, they post the results of, um, you know, abuse investigations when coaches, when people are sanctioned. It, it, I think it's interesting, just off the top, you, 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 you quoted that statement from Hockey Canada about, you know, the organization wanting to respect the wishes of this this woman to to stay private and and i think that's a really important point it, it, it that that's super important of course and the first call that i made on reporting this was to her lawyer asking you know if if making this public even just reporting about the case might cause any problems from a you know a self-harm perspective so we we checked that 
But, you know, there's a public conversation to have here. And there are ways to protect, um, you know, survivors like this, just the same as Kyle Beach when we were reporting on that form, the former NHL player who was abused. I had known Kyle Beach's name for months and months. We deal with this all the time with the Young Offenders Act, with not naming uh, minors and, and abuse survivors. So, so there are absolutely ways to both protect the identity of people who do not want to be identified who are survivors, but also to have this public conversation about how far we've come and what else needs to be done to make sports safer for our children. Yeah, and there's a moment where organizations use the cover of protecting the privacy of people to actually mask the fact that they're not actually being transparent. There's certainly one does not have to be at the expense of the other. Senior correspondent for TSN, Rick Westhead. About two hours from now, the testimony will go on. I know you will be there. I hope you join me on power play later. Just give us a breakdown. I think people don't understand. You know, they're going to say a public money used in this. There's a lot more at stake here than just the use of public money uh, in a settlement. There's how many more, as Rick said, how often is this happening? And why isn't this more transparent? Uh, Rick West said, you're the best, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. TSN senior correspondent. Thank you, sir. All right, uh, we'll take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to ask you more about what you trust when you give money to an organization. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the program. You know, uh, Rick Westhead was just joining us uh, from TSN, and he's heading into this. Uh, there's, a, there's an investigation on Parliament Hill with high-ranking officials from Hockey Canada. They're literally... And the Hockey Canada uh, Foundation, they're going to find out about uh, how they settled these allegations that had uh, involved uh, a number of players on the Canadian Junior National Team and others um, from the National Junior Team where a unnamed uh, woman, her privacy protected, her name came forward, alleges she was sexually assaulted. And then three weeks later, it was all hush-hushed and settled up. No one heard about it. And now the question is, uh, an organization gets millions of dollars from the federal government. Did they use federal money to pay the settlement? But even more importantly, like, what's going on with the money? How many other settlements are there? How often is someone settling a sexual assault case to protect the reputation of these teams? Oh, I love the junior team. Well, I don't know. If, they, if you get federal money... If you take public money, you should be transparent with how you spend it. If you use that to settle, if there are settlements, you should be obliged. And I think any organization that has a a sexual assault or these kind of issues with one of its people should be obliged to at least post on their financials what they're settling. People should know that. People should know that. Don't you think so? But it has raised another question for me. About sports. And, and I'm going to end the show on this. And I'll give you the number to call. Because sports are expensive. one 633 1010 one 633 1010 or 71010 
are sports in this country just getting too expensive? First of all, watching sports is expensive. Even memorabilia are expensive. Just today, we found out that you can bid on a rare ticket stub from the debut college game of Michael Jordan's 1981 game when he played with the University of North Carolina playing against Kansas City. The ticket stub, according to Heritage Auctions, is going to be ten grand. What? A 40-year-old ticket stub to Michael Jordan's first college game, someone's going to pay ten grand for? It's history, apparently. So even sports history is expensive. But if you want to play football, soccer, well, soccer may be the least expensive. But if you want to play hockey, it is a, it is a huge amount of money to pay. And the truth is, there's a lot of economically disadvantaged kids who would be great hockey players, but can't afford it. Just too damn expensive. It is. It's going to hurt hockey. Soccer, less expensive. Basketball, less expensive. Even those are expensive. Hockey's ridiculous. So here you've got sports that is costing families a fortune. The average person, just want to put your kid in hockey, put your kid in football, put your kid in gymnastics, put your kid in whatever it costs, an arm and a leg. Then at the very highest levels, at the very highest levels, as we'll see today, you've got Hockey Canada officials appearing and say, well, we settled sexual assault allegations. We don't even want to disclose the money. We don't want to disclose the players. We don't want to disclose who did it. We don't want to disclose where the money's from. So they're getting millions of dollars to support their organizations, and they have no transparency. Meanwhile, the average Joe and Josephine, like you and I, are paying an arm and a leg to get our kids in sports. And at the highest levels... We know it's a nightmare. Gord, uh, you can comment on any of this. Gord, what's up? Evan, I know sports are getting too expensive, Evan, but going back to the last, why aren't the players being held accountable? Why aren't criminal charges being laid? Well, great question. question, Great question. Because they settled it, Gord. And I I don't know the merits of the case. But but then it's public money that settled it. Then the the public should know who they're settling for names. Oh, that's a great, you are, you're hitting the nail on the head. And this is one reason why the Federal Committee on Canadian Heritage is investigating. But even if it's not, now the question is, if they settled it, do you smear the guy? Well, maybe. Fair point. And it's, 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 the organization is not transparent about anything and let alone the allegations. If you're settling it, should the, should the names of the players who who have been, who have been accused of this, Horrific act, and then they settled. Should they be named? I don't know. Hockey Canada has admitted guilt by settling. Okay, therefore they should name the players. It infuriates me, and it infuriates you. I can see that. I appreciate that, Gord. Uh, thank you. Hi, yeah, thanks for the call, uh, Pierre. What's up? Oh, I just when you hit a nerve, we talk about the price of hockey. I I was just telling your your screener there that. Uh, the Spectator did a, a five-part article a couple of years ago about the price of hockey. And basically, if you come from a low-income household, you're not going to make the NHL. It's just the cards are so stacked against you. Oh, what, listen, if you want to play any elite hockey, you can. If you're, if you're a good hockey player and you're going to play double or triple A, 
You have to pay ten thousand, fifteen thousand bucks a year registration, travel equipment. It's big. Yeah, it's it's really sad because it's like you said. There's a lot of high skilled athletic kids that live in the cities that have don't have a shot in hell of putting some skates on and seeing what it's like. Now, the government was serious about getting kids into sports. That kind of stuff should all be subsidized, you know? You take your equipment, you turn it in the next year, let's move on. Yeah, maybe, and, and, and that itself has got some issues. I appreciate the call. And you want, look, there are all sorts of boutique tax credits for sports. I remember the Harper government did that. Some people don't like those boutique tax credits because they all, but sports are important. Uh, Tina, I want to, uh, welcome to the show. What's up? Only, <laughs> my son only has interest in two sports, and they're the most expensive sports you could possibly do. is scuba diving and horseback riding. The only reason why he is able to do them is because I've spent the last few years doing them myself and building up the equipment for both of those sports. Ha. Otherwise, it would be impossible. Horseback, horseback riding is for the rich. Like, let's be can It's a nutty sport. Yeah, and I used to compete in both English jumping, show jumping, and in Western barreling. And I have my own horse, and I have I bought my own horse when I was a teenager. My own money out of my own pocket, I bought it myself. And I still have that same horse to this day. Well, in and the West, the like barrel racing, drive. barrel race, like that's a culture, like that's a big part of the culture in the West and lots of parts of Canada. I understand that, but it's still bloody expensive. Now. Like, you got, you got, for if you're a horse jumper, you got to trail up, like I... You know, that's the other side of the world. Uh, but I appreciate that. And, and scuba diving. By the way, your, your kid sounds interesting, just for the record. <laughs> but you better, good luck trying to support your kid. Um, there's a lot. So many people, by the way, are texting me saying maybe the Fed should make transparency mandatory condition of funding. Uh, people are so furious about this. Why is Hockey Canada responsible? Eight hockey players should be charged. Amateur hockey is a huge business. Do the math. Evan, hockey will turn into a sport that kids make it to the next level because they can afford it, not because of talent. Like, we're hitting on a nerve here. You know, when we talk about our national sport, I love hockey. I coached hockey. I love it. But it's got to be fair, transparent, and accessible. Otherwise, it's a mythology that is empty, and we cannot let that happen. All right, I'll see you on Power Play tonight. Thanks for the calls.